Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. I'm, of course, Josh Beiser, and we have another developer interview lined up tonight. We're going to be discussing the game Undermine with the developers of it from Thorium, and hopefully I didn't butcher that too badly. But please welcome to the podcast, Derek and Clint. How are you guys doing? Good, great. Thanks for having us on. Yep, it's a pleasure to have you guys on. I've been playing Undermine on and off since it went into early access, and we are recording this about two weeks away from the game officially hitting 1.0. So, Devlin, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, feels really good to almost be there. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it does. And we're going to be discussing the game as well as some roguelike design topics for this cast. So, since this is uh, both of your first times on uh, my cast, as always, I'd like to give you guys a chance to kind of talk a little bit about your background, and for the people listening, what is Undermine? Sure, so I'll start with my background. Um, I began my career as an engineer, except not in games. For IBM, I worked for a number of years, and eventually decided, this is boring, I need to do something (laughs) else in my life, so got into games, and now... After working at some bigger studios, finally have gone indie. I guess my title would be lead engineer of Thorium. And I did all the programming for Undermine, bit of design work. And yeah, I've been, been in the games industry for about 10 years now, I suppose. Nice. Through a stint at Relic, through Blackbird Entertainment. Um, both of those are Vancouver based studios. Mm-hmm. But nothing compares to indie. Indie is mm-hmm. by far the most fun. You have total control over what you do. And. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yes. I've heard that from a lot of developers. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a, not an uncommon story, I don't think, to break away from a bigger studio and, and do your own thing. Uh, my name is Clint Hasker, and I've been in games for 15 years now. I started at EA back in 2005. Um, I was a tester for uh, just as the Xbox 360 was coming uh, out on the market. Uh, and so I worked there for a couple of years and then I moved over to Relic. Um, after a couple of years there, I met Derek, uh, worked at Relic for about four years on PC games like Company of Heroes and Dawn of War. Nice. Um, I got laid off because THQ imploded. Uh, <laughs> they went bankrupt and, uh, there was mass layoffs across the company. And so I got caught up in one of those. Uh, I ended up. Moving down to the States uh, from Vancouver. So Relic Relic is based in Vancouver. Um, so I moved down to Seattle to a mobile company that was very small and indie. Uh, kind of during the Wild West era of mobile, which was really fun. Uh, but we eventually got bought by King. And then King got bought by Activision. So like a tiny fish got be- eaten by a medium-sized fish that got eaten by a giant fish. Um, and obviously like a lot of culture changed and the mobile industry changed and, and it just wasn't that fun anymore. So, uh, I quit and I joined Derek, uh, who had been doing undermine for a couple of years by then, um, came on undermine had, had been, um, that like a lot of technical development had been made, but not a lot of content development Mm -hmm. had been made. So, uh, the design of undermine uh, there were there were big building blocks in place when I came on, but a lot of the design of Undermine came after that point. Okay, and uh, and for the people listening, obviously we're going to be talking about it extensively over the next few minutes. But what is kind of the elevator pitch of Undermine? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> this is you, Clint. Go for it. 
the the elevator pitch is undermines kind of an action adventure roguelike it mixes um it, mi- it mixes elements from um real roguelikes or or i guess less progression based roguelikes like mm-hmm. the binding of isaac i know there's some progress there, there's purists out there that'll crucify <laughs> me for saying that but oh, yes. um uh, it mixes stuff from uh, elements of like roguelikes, like Binding of Isaac, with rogue lights, like uh, Rogue Legacy. So those are like two of our biggest um, uh, inspirations for the game. Um, and uh, really, what we like about the genre is kind of the mechanical and systems interaction, and mm-hmm. um, really being able to develop a character in creative ways. And so the goal with Undermine was always to make items that interacted. Um, uh, or to to maximize the potential of interaction between different items um not just combat items but like exploration items mm-hmm. and and resource um resource items as well mm-hmm. and how long has undermine like actually been development for i think a little over five years now um i hit on the concept or i just kind of came up with the desire to want to make a rogue like 2015 ish and uh, it just like a lot of paths, this one has not been a straight line. Mm-hmm. The original impetus was sort of just I wanted a fun top-down dungeon exploration game. There was This is something we don't talk about a whole lot, but there was a weird Bitcoin phase where Undermine was going to be a, a Bitcoin miner, <laughs> basically. Like, very literal interpretation of mining Bitcoins. That lasted about a month and <laughs> went through a couple pitches to the Canadian government. They hand out a lot of grants for wacky game ideas, and I figured, what the heck, I'll take my shot here. All of that is quite indis- unrecognizable from what the game is today. I think we've really <laughs> wrangled it into the the best shape it can be in, and it definitely hits all the all the beats. And like Clint was saying, it's uh, it is it is a development sandbox, and I've taken that approach from the technical side too. I I just had this burning desire to make a really fun programming sandbox for myself to play around with and express gameplay ideas through, mm-hmm. and I think we've really hit the mark there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. If you guys started development back in 2015, that would be like right as like we we were kind of starting to see this like explosion of roguelike designs. Like um, for those of you listening, I'm currently writing a book about roguelike design, and one like the big things about the genre was kind of this explosion over the past decade with games like The Buy of Isaac, Spelunky, FTL, and so on, kind of showing people that you didn't need to make a turn-based kind of design and that would just... It, basically, the world genre didn't need to be locked to that. And with something like Undermine, I guess, were you inspired by like any of those games that were like, kind of starting to blow up in the market? Yeah, absolutely. So I think... Uh, I think... The thing that everyone's starting to understand now is like the term roguelike means a lot of different things oh, to yes. a lot of different people. And I, I think even if you go back and look at rogue and see what they were trying to do, like the turn-based aspect, I think, was a technical limitation rather than what they actually wanted to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, who knows? I, I mean, the person who made it knows. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, uh, but I think what you see is you see the, the trappings of what is interesting about rogue um, and all these different creators come to it and they kind of pick and pull like the pieces that they that that in that kind of resonate with them. So I think for us, like run based gameplay is 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 more and more interesting to us, especially as we get older. Um, 
because it, it creates like a self-contained experience and like a good stopping point. Um, and but you can combine that with, you know, the progression of of other, you know, roguelites that have come along and and get the same kind of progression that you would get through an RPG with those self-contained um, bits of gameplay. And then you get other creators who kind of apply these things to different genres. So you get things like Slay the Spire um, that applies it to like card and deck building, which was another big inspiration for us. Like the passive artifacts, I think, inspire in are are really interesting. Um, and of course, like the two the two games that I mentioned before, Isaac and and Rogue Legacy were a big inspiration. Derek is a huge Spelunky fan, um, so we've really um, taken a lot from all the different big hitters in the genre and even even stuff that i think a lot of people would not consider i've had it pitched to me that uh pubg is a roguelike where you (laughs) start you start from scratch every time and it's it's somewhat procedural and you have to go get your build on and find the right gear and outfit yourself i think uh clint and i have played countless hours of mobas mostly dota 2 uh heroes of new earth to me, I get a lot of the same feeling from that experience. You start very lowly every single time. It's about an hour long. And by the end of it, you have achieved this great this great status, hopefully. <laughs> so it's those little hour-long loops inside it that I think we we gravitate towards and, and focus on. And, and I just want to say, Derek, by saying the line, PUBG is a roguelike, I think you <laughs> probably cause a lot of migraines <laughs> out in the I'm ether not, right this- now. Just to be clear, I'm I'm not claiming that. I'll, all I'm saying is that I have heard people claim that. <laughs> the jury's perhaps still out, but yeah, my my point is that there's these there's little loops and there's big loops, and we kind of have them both in in undermine. We have the little loop of the run, and we have the bigger loop of the progression. Mm-hmm. And getting that gameplay loop down about roguelike design, that of course takes us to the ever popular topic of roguelike versus roguelite. And that's another thing that we could spend a few hours, I'm sure, debating with people on. So I guess, like, for you guys, where do you see, like, Undermine, like, fit in? And do you have, like, any thoughts on, like, what those two terms, like, actually mean together? (laughs) I don't think, I don't think either of us give much credence to the, to the difference, like, Mm -hmm. We we will advertise Undermine as a roguelike or a roguelite. I I, I think it, when you're when you're trying to market a game, I think you you kind of have to speak to more people than just the hardcore that know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so making the delineation between a roguelite and a roguelike to a lot of people doesn't doesn't make any difference. Like they don't even know what the distinction is. So a lot of the time we won't we won't. I I would if like you really had to classify Undermine, I think we'd say it's a roguelite. Um, but we don't make that distinction too often because a lot of people just don't understand it and we don't want to create confusion. Um, but also inside the game, um, we want to, we're getting to this point where we're, we're really feature rich and we're trying to, um, cater to more and more people. And so we're trying to have something in undermine for everybody. So we do have a mode that while not like pure it's not like a puritanical like roguelike but it is far more roguelike than than the standard mode in undermine that has a lot of progression built into it mm-hmm. um so i think it's the the line is getting blurrier and blurrier in our game in particular as we add more features because we want to um we want to give something to everybody so like there there were maybe people who are very um 
very pure about what a roguelike is and they probably bounced off undermine early as soon as they saw like a, a permanent progression uh upgrade uh we would hopefully like to see those people come back and give it a try again later and and try the new modes that we add and see if they enjoy it more that way this is some content that we recently uh announced that's coming up in 1.0 but we've added a new system called hexes which are these very powerful curses and one of them gets rid of your purse your progression it just strips all of your upgrades that you bought off of you so now you can play the main mode much more as a roguelike as well so like Clint has said, we've really worked to blur the lines between all of it. So when people ask us, is this a roguelite or a roguelike? I say, it's both. Depends <laughs> on which mode you want to play. Yeah, and it's very tricky. Like, and people will like argue to the death over some of this terminology. And it's one of the things I'm trying to make a little bit more clearer in my book about the differences between the two. And... The progression system, I think that's always a fascinating part. It's something that we don't, we didn't really see to the same extent with the classical roguelikes. And it is something that I, like, through, like, the games that I play and just, like, trying to do some casual research, I think, like, Binding of Isaac was, like, the first game to, like, really nailed this idea of what you do in run A will provide some kind of major change or carryover to to run B. And then we saw that evolve even further with titles like Rogue Legacy, where the entire pro- where progression is essentially going to be ever present and you're always move you're always moving that needle forward with each run. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and with something like with Undermine, you mentioned a few minutes ago about the kind of interact interactivity between your various items. And this is something that I, ever since I played the Blind of Isaac, it's something that I wanted more developers to kind of experiment with. This idea that instead of these items kind of being like limited to each other, as in you either take the fire axe or the ice axe, it's an idea of you can take the fire cham and the ice cham, and now you're just doing fire and ice. Or buying of Isaac a triple bomb into a split bomb into a brimstone that just like wipes the entire screen. And <laughs> yeah. I guess as you guys were developing Undermine, what was kind of the overall philosophy in terms of like the items you wanted to put in and that level of interactivity? Um the level of interactivity we wanted was maximum. So mm-hmm. we um we when we look at items that we want to put into the game, like if they don't interact with other items or we can't foresee them interacting with items in the future, like we just don't do them at all. There were early relics that we added to Undermine that just, they would do something flashy, like you would jump up in the air and press jump again and you'd slam back into the ground and that's like a neat action move you can do. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't it doesn't combine with your other tool set in any way. Um, and early on, what we... What we did is, I can't remember how we called it, but uh, I guess the way we talk about it more now is like setups and payoffs. And so you want to, um, like a setup would be an item that like makes you crit more. And then a payoff would be an item that does something when you crit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we continuously put more and more of that stuff in. And now it's gotten to the point where the matrix is so large that we can't, foresee all of the interactions until mm-hmm. they happen and so you'll get emergent stuff that is either cool or degenerate <laughs> and we have to 
we have to fix the degenerate stuff and and leave the cool stuff. And sometimes people think the degenerate stuff is cool. So you you like <laughs> you kind of back yourself into a corner on whether you fix it or not. Um, but the way we looked at it and 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 Isaac was a big inspiration. I think if you look at games like Isaac, or if you even look at Rogue, uh, or you look at like the Legend, uh, the Legend of Zelda is a little different because it, it's more of like a self-contained ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But all of these games can be kind of considered resource management games because you have you know keys and bombs and and other consumable items, and then there's uh, a floor of like a dungeon and your job is to use those consumable items to get like maximum power out of this floor. So it's like, well, if I take this key and unlock this door and take the item out of that room and then move it over to this other room and, and, uh, you know, trend, uh, you know, uh, change it into some other item and then take that over there. And then it becomes like this big puzzle of like how you can create an, as much power as possible with your builds. And I thought, or we, we thought that that was one of the most interesting aspects of these types of games. And so, undermines ecosystem is very modular all of our all of our status effects and buffs and stuff are are classified as like an item in the ecosystem that can be uh gained or lost or changed or exchanged uh even the bad ones uh and so i think that really provides a lot of the strategy of the game mm-hmm. and what, as you were talking about in terms of that like modular design of your various items that uh, from my time playing it, it can definitely lead into those situations where you kind of have almost like two distinct builds of playing on your mind. You can go for all in on your melee, or you can go for kind of throwing your pickaxe. And you have these various, and the various items can supplement or enhance them accordingly. With, I guess, with like designing and balancing undermine, were there like any other like I guess, builds or strategies that like, came up during development that either were like either too extreme or did you just really settle on like those two specific tracks early on? Uh, I think the, that was like the main, uh, those were the main action moves of the game. And, and so they were the ones we focused on earliest. Uh, certainly when we started building items, we, we created items that were far too too powerful <laughs> and and the combinations were too powerful i think the first time we had players get their hands on it we went to dreamhack in 2018 and we had one guy in particular he understood how the game worked and he'd assemble like 10 relics and then all of a sudden become unkillable <laughs> because of how powerful he'd become so there's like uh there's a balance to strike between picking up the item by itself should make you feel a little bit more powerful but uh it, that that power creep as soon as you get 10 items or 20 items and they start interacting with one another that power creep can quickly get away from you and so it creates a really hard balance problem of the item needs to be impactful on its own but also needs to be balanced within this huge build um but more towards the other question about builds i think right now as we as part of 1.0 we're trying to add more items in that encourage different kinds of builds that are not melee or ranged focused more uh builds that uh, center around you having armor and that armor being able to do something for you or Mm -hmm. you having um trying to create more of a bomb build uh that can happen which is a tricky proposition because i think in any game with consumables players are naturally inclined to not spend those consumables Mm -hmm. they want to 
they want to hoard them. Um, even if that's not logical, like if you have 99 of something and using it <laughs> doesn't mean anything, you should use it if it's going to be the most powerful thing available to you. But just trying to encourage people to get out of that mindset of hoarding and allow like a consumable to be center to your build. Um, so we're trying to put more and more stuff in to encourage different types of play that are not just the the, the vanilla melee or, or throw. Mm-hmm. It has this nice sort of double effect as well in that the more items that we give you, the more possibilities are open to you, but the pool is now that much more diluted. So you can't just always achieve that one build that you like to do. You're forced to play around with different options just because of the opportunity costs. You're not going to see the items that you actually want to get. So you have to make do with the items that you do get. And hopefully you can cobble together a viable build out of those items and make a good run of it. And that's basically the MO of the Bio Isaac right there. And mm-hmm. just having to constantly adapt to what the items are going to drop for you. And Exactly. That, and as you guys were talking about a few minutes ago, like there's that line between do we leave this item or a combination as is because, you know, it's meme and crazy? Or do we have to change it because if somebody takes it, they're just going to have a horrible time? And I know when I interviewed Edmund, who did the Bion of Isaac, he put in, you know, every manner of crazy items. Any Bion of Isaac fan listening, of course, knows how disastrous a soy milk pickup could be at the wrong time. (laughs) And, like, his idea was basically, you know, screw balance, I'm just going to put everything in there, and we're just going to kind of let the chips fall where they lie. And with Undermine, I guess... What were kind of like the considerations you guys were thinking about in terms of how strong should an item be and how weak should an item be? Like, should there be an item in the game that is purposely a bad choice for somebody <laughs> to pick up? Ooh, that's this a great is, question. This has been a topic of many conversations because <laughs> I think it, there's kind of what we want and there's kind of what we think will be more tolerable to the community or, you know, to the people playing our game. I think Derek and I lie more on the line of like items should just be interesting and they should be in there. And sometimes they're a bad choice and sometimes they're not. Um, but we have had to cave in on some items. I had, I had, a, I'd, I'd created an item called caustic vial. And what it did is uh, when you tapped an enemy with a ranged attack, it would put a buff on them or a debuff on them, I guess. And when they died, they'd explode in an AOE and the AOE was friendly fire. So <laughs> it all of a sudden made melee really uh, not viable when you had that item because you would you would hit the enemy with this debuff and it would explode and do damage to you. And I was like, well, that's the price of doing business. <laughs> uh, the problem with that item, it, it may not have been the friendly fire that was the problem, but the, the upside to the item just wasn't strong enough. And so just a lot of people just considered it just a bad item because it's like, well, even if... Even if this dictates me just doing a throw build, it's not even worth it in that case. Um, so there's a lot of ways to approach it. It's uh, I think if a, if an item is absolutely really interesting and a lot of the time is a super downside and some of the time is a super upside, those items we tend to keep um, because they have their place. And I think you in these types of games, you don't want perfect balance across the board because it makes it it makes the rng feel less interesting i think you want players to have runs where they encounter you know all the quote-unquote broken items and to get to assemble them and just get a free win out of it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to make sure that your game is designed in a way that a free win doesn't just undermine all the all the content that you've built. And I think that's the trick in a more progression-based uh, roguelike. Uh, the problem for us is that we want you to die somewhere along your run. Otherwise, you finish the game. Like It's like in Rogue Legacy, right? You have your, your five bosses, or I think there was five in Rogue Legacy. Um, but the game is very much designed that you get you know, some way into the castle, and then you die because like the numbers are just not in your favor. Enemies have like eight times more health than you do, or eight times more damage. Um, so you have to die, and you have to go um, upgrade yourself. And so creating a, a system of item combinations can easily undermine that because if you make something too strong, then people will just overcome those barriers uh, and just beat your game in a single run. Um, I really like the, uh, the... I think it's really important to have some variation in your not only your, your buff pool, like our items, but in your debuff pool as well. We have, we have, some, we have a curse system that are on their face, they're debuffs. But in the right context... They can be a big buff. Like, uh, for example, we have an item that changes all the cost, the cost of shop items to HP instead of gold. <laughs> that thing is really a positive in some situations. And since you don't usually have good control over your curse removal, it's mostly random. It really de-incentivizes you to remove any curses at all because you may end up accidentally removing this curse that's really beneficial to you. So for that reason you don't want those pools to just be uniformly powerful you want a lots of peaks and valleys some good ones some bad ones mm-hmm. in both pools that's very important i think yeah and having something that can be a negative or a positive in the right in the right situation is definitely a very hard asset when it comes to these kinds of item balances as you guys mm-hmm. were saying a few minutes ago like there are the uh, the example of throwing the axe and you know having them explode in AOE for friendly fire, that like this is something that we see in a lot of roguelike or kind of item driven games where something will have a negative, but the positive that goes with it is just not good enough to compensate for it, and it leads into those situations where players will just outright refuse to take an item. It's it's basically, I think, the DNA of any one of these kinds of roguelike-style games. There's always going to be those items that are bottom tier. And I don't think there really is an easy solution to like, avoid that. No. I think, I think the way you want to approach it is if every player is putting the same item on the bottom of their tier list, then you probably need to change that item in some way. Otherwise, it's not serving any purpose other than just disappointing people all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but if... Uh, I think you're. I think you, uh, when you're building a game of this type, if if everyone's putting together tier lists and those tier lists are different across players, then your job is you're you're successful because yeah, an item can generally be considered weak, but if some people consider it their favorite item or an item they don't mind, mm-hmm. then there's there's a difference of opinion there, and I think that that's an interesting thing. I I, I don't think these games would be. Uh, as interesting as they are, if if people just put together tier lists of items and they were all identical, um, it's some some items should show, uh, should kind of resonate with players differently based on their style of play or what they like to do, and I think that's a good place to be. I think we would be remiss if we didn't also mention, in some way, Magic: The Gathering as inspiration for some of our design decisions, such as. Uh, the whole draft aspect, right? You're, you're making your build there when you're drafting magic. And 
some cards are just absolutely passed around the table and nobody wants to take them. They're always last pick. But then a few years down the road, a deck will come out that headlines that card that everybody passed at the table last season. And it's amazing because the, the context has changed. And I feel like that's how that's how some of our items work. In the right context, they're just brilliant. Mm. Yep. Yeah. That's an that's another way of like looking at the the item design too. Is uh, some items we you know the community will generally consider weak, um, and we won't have any intention on changing the item. But we have you know something in the back of our mind like oh, well that item is just lacking its build, right? Like, and so if we if we encourage or if we build more items that can combine like com- combo with it and create more uh, more interaction then that item will become better. And so sometimes it's not even about changing the item itself. It's just giving it self, uh, giving more context in the game for it to, to thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what you said about kind of having the tier list, a different tier list is a really solid point. Because as we said, when you start throwing in all these crazy combinations, you never know how something is really going to interact. And I'm, I'm sure with some with a game like Undermine, with all the items you've designed, that you haven't had a chance to play test every possible combination that no, can work. No, definitely not. <laughs> not even close. And that's kind of like the beauty of these kinds of games. Was one of the things I think we see some World Light designers slip up on is that they adhere too much to trying to make the game perfectly balanced. And then you run into that situation of, okay, if I don't get item X my run is completely over. Like, just stop it and we need to, you know, re-roll. Right. Yeah, we definitely try to avoid that situation. We th- This is a, a stumbling block on the... Or this is a big tell when I think we're designing an item. If this is a... Or a curse in particular. If you get this curse and it's so detrimental that you just feel like a restarting and, you know, killing, giving up and starting a new run, then obviously that curse is too strong. We need to tone it down. Yeah, early early in development, we put in uh, when we first started building curses, we put in a curse that didn't let you heal, um, and it was so above above the board. Across, or it was so much more powerful than all the other curses that players would essentially just give up and restart if they got mm-hmm. it. Um, and now that is considered in our game a hex, and hexes are essentially just insane modifiers that build new runs that are like, hey, you start at 1 H, or you are always at 1 HP, or you can't heal, or all items are hidden. Um, These are totally optional things for people who have really dominated the game and are looking for extra challenge. Mm -hmm. So it can be very easy to go overboard with the item's design. Um, But I think Edmund has it... I like his philosophy because... You want to put in items that are really over the top and really um, make people, you know, enjoy picking those things up and trying them out. Um, but you also want to. I, I think we maybe. I think to some. It, this is a this is a very uh, personal taste, right? Like I think we pull back and we we err on the side of a little bit more balance than a game like like Isaac. You can break so badly that if you're not careful, you will literally destroy your game like you'll crash the game and it can't handle it anymore right we try to avoid all of those situations so like even if players know how to destroy the game they can't um we slip up sometimes like currently the live version of the game is destroyable we have like an infinite duplication uh it's not even really a bug it just like it was an oversight more than anything Uh, but those kind of things we want to fix because uh, they can also just lead to boring gameplay, right? Like if if it's the best thing to do to sit and dupe this item for like 
two hours and to like really maximize your run, it's not a great place for uh, players to be. You want to make sure that they can keep moving on with their run and it doesn't take an inordinate amount of time to overcome. Mm-hmm. Now, one that I wanted to ask you guys about, and this is another one of those aspects that can be very challenging for roguelike developers, is the long-term persistence or the progression in Undermine. And this is also one of those areas, as we said earlier, with the whole roguelike, roguelite debate that people will argue about. And I know you guys have said a few minutes ago that you didn't want the game to be essentially winnable in one run. And a major part of that with the Rogue Legacy trappings is that fact that for most people, you're not going to have a level one run on Rogue Legacy. I've heard it is possible. I've heard like speedrunners have made use of it, but I am definitely not good enough for it. Right. There's always, I think, that fine line you have to walk with these kinds of persistent elements that if you make it too weak, then as you said, players going to, you know, beat the game on this first two, three runs, get bored of the game and stop playing it. But if you go too extreme, then it gets in that situation of, I need to basically fail 15 times and, you know, raise my, you know, attack up just so I can get through the game and actually have a chance at winning it. And I want to ask you both, like, what are your thoughts on that, on like the whole progression system and how did that apply to Undermine's Balance? been a really it's been a really tough thing to balance um a lot of the the most negative feedback we've gotten on undermine i think is that the game can feel grindy um lots of people even if they like the game they consider it grindy Hmm. and we've been trying to figure out why that is because our game it, it is balanced a little bit like a souls game where it's like if you are good enough you could just run through the entire game without the progression um but for most people, it's going to be you, you like they will need the progression to overcome some of the challenges. Um, and so it's it's where do you want to draw the line of like how much can player skill get you and how much do you need these upgrades? Um, and then also how many runs to buy the upgrades that you feel you need? Um, so I think as we when we when we first went out into early access we didn't have a lot of content and i say i think we artificially inflated how hard we made the game uh or how much you had to buy or how much you had to save for the upgrades uh just because we didn't want people to just blow through the content and as we've been adding more and more content onto the end of the game we've been not making the game easier as a whole but flattening the difficulty curve towards the beginning of it to try and avoid the grindiness so that you feel like you can make more progression in the early stages and get into the middle of the game where you're unlocking things at a pretty regular rate and seeing a lot of new stuff. Um, I, I don't know if we're at the perfect level yet, and it's it's been something that we've really struggled with. I think that was maybe uh, when we decided to do roguelite features like progression, mm-hmm. that was uh, maybe a thing that we underestimated or how, how difficult that, that balance was going to be to strike. Mm-hmm. Very true. Going back to something that Clint, Clint said earlier too, where we're trying to kind of offer a smorgasbord of just something for everybody. I, I think one of the one of the things that I pride ourselves on above even a game like Rogue Legacy is that our story is for certainly a certain type of player as well. <laughs> we we offer a lot more narrative. We offer NPCs, and we've tried to make sure that a fair bit of that comes in early. You rescue the blacksmith early. You know, you start unlocking new NPCs early in the game. 
so that you can at least see what your options are very early on. And, and a lot of people, I think, are motivated to just sort of uncover the storyline as well. It's not just about trying to buy that next upgrade, but it's mm-hmm. trying to figure out what it, what the mystery of the Undermine is. Mm-hmm. So that's another another hook for another type of player. And I kind of want to build off of what uh, Clint was just saying about uh, the game feeling grindy. Like, for myself, like, when I got really lucky and during, I think this was maybe five, six months ago, it was like right around that time I was replaying the game, I managed to beat the first boss, I think, on my first or second run of a brand new account. And like you guys said, that's a kind of one of the major points about these kinds of progression systems. They're there to help somebody who is not basically getting good RNG. And I think where that sense of grindiness comes in is that when we see games that feature a lot of incremental upgrades rather than unlocking new pen or new powers... I think that's where people start to feel like, okay, I'm going to spend this money, I'm going to get two more points of attack. Now i got to spend again for five more points of attack. And I think it's very hard to show somebody what that actually impacts, as opposed to saying, you spent 100 gold, you now uh, start with a rocket launcher, and you can now blow up walls <laughs> right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think also in games where you're unlocking powers, uh, the powers are never advertised as raw power increase. Like they might be, but they're often just an alternative to the way you're playing currently. And in our game, we do have just straight up stat increases. And I think uh, when we do balance undermine uh, from our perspective, there are two tracks we have to keep track of. We have to we have to look at how players can progress in a stat way, like in a in an upgrades way. Um, but players are also going to progress in a skill way. And I think where the grindiness comes in is if a player ignores the fact that they can just get better at the game and relies on just the upgrades, then the game's going to feel a bit more grindy because if they're they're fast and loose about taking damage and aren't playing, you know, like um, disciplined, then the game is going to feel very grindy because the game is not is going to reject you. Like a lot, our game is based around precise play and not taking a lot of hits and not being you know sloppy so if if a player is just like oh, i'm just gonna buy all the upgrades and and just like uh you know run my way through this and not be not pay a lot of attention they're they're not going to see a lot of success and so they're going to get the impression that the game wants you to just keep repeating loops and keep buying upgrades but that's not the way our game works is if you're not actually progressing in the game you're not going to earn enough money for the later upgrades you're going to stall out mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's for better or worse. Like, it's going to reward people who are like, oh, I've kind of plateaued and I just need to get better and learn how to manipulate the resources in the game and earn new relics on a run versus I'm just going to buy some more upgrades. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a trick, tricky message to get across. But I think for the most part, we have very good, favorable reviews. And I think people get that overall. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And. Like we've said, it's very hard to get that balance right, and I think Undermine does succeed in that aspect. Because I've played roguelikes where basically like the first 10 to 15 levels, or if 10 to 15 runs, are just washes. Because my character doesn't have enough health, or I come to a boss and it's just a colossal bullet sponge or health sponge. And that kind of stuff can be very frustrating to somebody. Now, uh, yeah. 
one thing I just wanted to ask that you guys said a minute ago about kind of um, smoothing out or uh, flattening the difficulty curve. I was wondering, like, for any developers listening, like, what kind of balance? So you don't have to go into, you know, too much technical detail, but, like, what aspects have you guys tweaked or altered to kind of streamline that difficulty progression? Yeah. Um, I think it, it kind of comes down to what you were just saying about bull and sponge bosses, right? And so... It, it can give a bad impression if you if you go through a floor and you you know are relatively you know three or four shotting enemies and and doing pretty good and then you come across a boss and all of a sudden you hit it and the the health barely <laughs> moves. That doesn't necessarily mean the boss is hard. Like maybe the boss has like a super easy pattern and all you have to do is just repeat it over and over again. Um, but we've been trying to. I think we have been lowering our boss's health more and more as. Like we we want an epic boss battle, but I think the real hard thing is is when you're when you're balancing a game like this, especially when you're balancing a single player game, because it's when you're balancing a, balancing a multiplayer game, you just balance it from one perspective, and then you rely on matchmaking to have players match against people of equal skill. Mm-hmm. But when you're ma- when you're trying to balance a single player game, you're having players of all different skill attack the same problem. And so it can be very hard because you want to make sure that you lower the gate so that the, like most players can get over it. But you also don't want to lower it to the point where people who are actually quite good at your game are bored out of their minds because they'll come across a boss and three-shot it and never get hit. It's not a big deal. Um, and I think we've learned a lot in that arena. And the other thing we've learned is that neither of us had really worked on action games too much in our careers leading up to this. Um, we'd work on strategy games and things like that. And so the thing we're the thing we're learning to make a good boss battle is to actually have intricate patterns and unpredictability be part of the difficulty rather than just the sheer amount of hit points something has. And so we've made more chaotic bosses as we've gone along. And as we've done that, we've had to patch our bosses with lower and lower health pools because we overestimate or we underestimate this chaotic pattern with this huge bulk of damage and health and how hard that actually ends up being. And the other thing you have working against you is when you work on a game for multiple years, you naturally become quite good at it. And so you have to, uh, you know, you will, you will fight the boss and you'll just like not even be thinking like too hard about it. You'll be reading like some thread on the internet and you'll just kill it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then, you know, someone who comes to your game and has never played it before and is still struggling with basic controls and trying to remember which button does which they come into that boss fight and it absolutely smashes them. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, you have to overcome your own biases too, of like, okay, well, this is relatively easy for us, but that means it's probably actually quite hard for most players. Um, and and so it's a, it's a combination. I think I think this is why early access is is particularly good for these types of games. Is if you're gonna create a game like this, unless you have a lot of friends who are willing to give you feedback, like honest feedback, and play the game for you, and and really um, have a variety of skill levels to help you balance, like you really need to actually just put it in the hands of um, some dedicated players that are going to give you honest feedback. Because uh, and then and then you have to make very 
targeted decisions about that feedback. Like, oh, most people consider it hard. Is that actually what you want to accomplish or not? Or do you want it to be easier? I think one of the, the best things we've done kind of all along, but especially recently leading up to 1.0, is that we've we've given players tools to tune their own difficulty. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll down-tune bosses to be, you know, a fit for the average player. But for the really good players out there, Here's a bunch of hexes. If you think that boss is too hot, is too easy, try fighting him at one HP. Now let's talk about difficulty. And that, that may uh, our our thought is that that's really going to satisfy a lot of the the difficulty curve. Just let the players choose the difficulty, and not and through a much more interesting system than just the difficulty slider. We've given them a lot of tools to play with. Yeah, and we try to incentivize risky play, where um, we have, like I said a long time ago or lo- earlier in this this talk uh our curse system is very modular and so it acts as having like different items applied to you just like relics and so then you have payoff items that are like well for every curse you have now your damage is increased by two or four or whatever and so uh players who want to show off can be like oh look at my 64 curse stack with my you know 140 (laughs) damage so it's like yeah they have 140 damage but they have like 60 things working against them um (laughs) And just incentivizing that for for people who are skilled at the game. Mm-hmm. And like that kind of modular difficulty, that's another very fascinating discussion we had about letting the player pick and choose what aspects of the game they want to make harder. One of my favorite examples was from Way of the Passive Fist that basically lets you tweak every detail what can make that game difficult and tune it to how you would see it. Mm. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah, we, we, we take that approach, but we try and do it as more of an in-world thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we didn't we don't really want a menu where you choose, like, easy, medium, hard, or anything like that. But we allow a lot of different outlets inside the game to, to do the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, an added bonus to all this, too, is that, you know, we, we are a small team. And our, our, even though we're, I think we're relatively quick at creating content, our content is limited. But a way we can really stretch it is to just recontextualize it. So when we build other mine, for example, it's the same floors, it's the same enemies, except now they're on different floors, and it's the same bosses, except in different orders. So here's the same content, completely recontextualized, which dramatically throws the balance in a different direction. And I think that's, it's naturally harder, and it was meant to be, but I think it's also a whole lot more interesting to look at things in a new light like that. One uh, thing I want to ask both of you guys about, as you were saying a few minutes ago, that your background, your respective backgrounds, are with like the strategy game and uh, strategy game genre, and we could certainly have a discussion about Company of Heroes. That would probably be way out of topic for today, but maybe someday we'll have that discussion. <laughs> That'd be great. And uh, discussing these from the idea of an action roguelike point of view, look, going into Undermine. Were there any like interesting aspects or details about focusing more on player skill in that regard that you guys had to kind of like wrap your wrap your heads around? Hmm. Yeah, like our broken dodge mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that's a this is definitely a topic we end up spending a lot of time discussing. You know, what what is the basic move kit like? Is it mm-hmm. too strong? Is it too weak? Is it too complex? Yeah, we went through a lot of kind of undirected iteration at the beginning, just trying to get a good feel for what a basic moveset would be like. And for better or worse, I think some people appreciate it, some people dislike it. The top-down jump mm. is such a core piece of the puzzle, but yet it's not something that really players expect 
Uh, a lot of, some players have grievances with the implementation of the jump, the readability of it, since it is just a 2D game. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of challenges there that we have that we struggle against too, just because when you can correctly utilize that tool, it's tremendously powerful. So we have to try to balance against that all the time. I feel. I think the trick with an action game is you use things like effects and animation to to uh, improve the readability of the game. And that's something that we we were not used to and we've had to learn a lot about because when you go and make a strategy game, you can just apply an icon or, you know, a lot of the time you just rely on HUD to give information to the player. And so you don't have to create like a fancy animation. You just, you create like a little icon indicator for them. In an action game, you don't want to clutter up the, the play field with a bunch of icons or with a bunch of text or any other kind of nonsense like that. You just need to create proper animated tells and uh you know things like that and you know when you go to make a game with a dodge i think this is this is the weak weaker side of undermine is like our jump for example works similar to a dodge roll but not entirely like a dodge roll like you actually aren't invincible for any of the frames but because the game is technically a 3d game you are on a plane that most attacks will not hit you and so you're you're functionally invincible um but there's also there's no lag between jumping off the ground or landing on the ground but because of where your collider is in space you can or cannot be hit and so i think just based on our background and our our experience making games like there are there are areas we could have improved um because we didn't anticipate the importance of those aspects uh and of course undermine is like a living breathing thing and so maybe there will be a day where we need go back and improve those. And, and we constantly are. Um, I think we've gotten it to a point where most people get it and don't have too much issue with it. Uh, we still get uh, bug reports almost every day where players are convinced that they're stuck. <laughs> and all they have to do is just jump over the rock in their way. <laughs> but they're, they're such not in the mindset of being able to jump from a top-down perspective that they would rather go open a bug report than to explore their options to, to jump over a rock. And that's been really eye-opening, just to think, okay, maybe we, we really have... For better or worse, we violated some long-standing tradition of you don't jump in top-down games. But for my money, that was a very conscious decision, probably for that reason, just to introduce a, a kind of new twist on things. And uh, as you were saying, like getting the the movement kit uh, down pat for like any kind of action-based game is very important. And I think this is another area where I've seen some developers struggle with is, as you guys said, like how good or how powerful should the basic moveset be. I have played, and for the people listening who know, like I have played plenty of action games in the last 20 years. And for games that make use of dodge rolls and iframes, I will exploit the heck out of that and not take any damage. Mm-hmm. And there are games that will purposely limit what the player can do. And then you run into the opposite effect that the basic feel of the game doesn't feel right or it feels very cumbersome unless of course you get a really good weapon or you get that really great upgrade but then for most of the time the player just feels like you know they're being restricted by the game yeah, yeah. It's very tricky to get the right balance and i think I don't, a lot of that comes from experience i don't think there's any right i i think if if there were a formula figuring figuring out exactly what you just said like there'd be a lot more successful developers out there mm-hmm. because 
I think the the trick to the constant push and pull of game design or game development is how do I empower a player and make them feel like a badass? Because that's what people come to games for. Like a lot of it is fantasy uh, wish fulfillment. Um, but the other half of the coin is challenge and how do I apply challenge to the player? And you constantly just want to push the player into that flow state of like challenging mm-hmm. them and then being able to overcome it and then ratcheting up the challenge and then being able to overcome that. And of course, if you if the challenge goes up too hard, too high, there's frustration. If it goes down too much, there's boredom. Mm-hmm. And like 99% of game development is c- keeping people in that middle ground where they're really enjoying themselves. Um, and yeah, there, I don't think there's. <laughs> that's where the like you know everyone is like, oh, I have a great idea for a game. It's like, <laughs> well, you're two percent of the way there, and then the other 98% is like delivering that idea and making people feel good while they're while they're interacting with it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very iterative oh yes and i'm sure with you guys especially with undermine being on early access the last few years you've had a chance to really see kind of that iterative process and how you know when the game meets consumer how much things can change oh certainly i i can't imagine being a game developer before twitch because just being able to drop in and anonymously watch players <laughs> engage with your product in mass is just incredibly effective learning for us. And I think it's, it's really opened our, my, my eyes, at least, and hopefully Clint's too, to a lot of the, the things that we should address. Yeah, there's a, there's a tricky first step there, though. You have to make a game popular enough that people will stream it. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Yeah, i got to get over that, that initial hurdle. Uh, yes, and that is definitely another topic we can certainly spend some time <laughs> on. Yeah, and it's I guess with the early access, I think this is one of those things when it comes to roguelike games in particular that can be very challenging from an early access point of view is that so much of these games are built on that iterative process. And that's not the same as designing a 8-10 to 10 hour long story driven game where you play through once and your experience is fixed. I guess for you guys and kind of being on early access and seeing like the consumer reactions and getting feedback, any, I guess, tips for developers listening or any you guys learn about kind of working irritably on on, Undermine? Yeah, I think even if you're in early access and, and you are iterating on your own game, you need to have a strong point of view of where you want to go. Um, if you let players dictate exactly the changes that you make, I don't, I don't think that ever ends with the kind of results that you hope it does. Um, and you can always have that happen. If you just build mod support for your game, that will happen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it's important to always have kind of like this direction that you want to go in. And then I think the strength of the player feedback players are very good at vocalizing what they don't like about stuff <laughs> and but they're they're very or a lot of the time i think they're a little bit off the mark when it comes to the the course correction for whatever it is that they don't like mm-hmm. like they will always offer their idea of what you should do but i think you the best way to take feedback is to internalize what people are saying and try and really suss out the sentiment of like okay i, I know this person is telling me they don't like x and they, it may very well be that X is what is bothering them, mm-hmm. but what really might be bothering them is something else entirely. And and so you need to reconcile that with your own vision of the game. 
and then come to the table with your own fix or your own implementation that you think is going to fix the problem. Um, for us, I think a lot of the time the fix is not something players expect, but a lot of the time they appreciate because we've really internalized what they've been telling us and not like we don't ignore player feedback at all. Um, but we don't always implement. We we very rarely implement their ideas verbatim. We we usually you know run it through our own personal filters. Some uh, tech advice for any any of your listeners out there who want to set up a really good early access environment for their games. I think we've gotten a ton of value out of having correct crash reporting and correct bug reporting throughout early access. These are these are just two more very valuable channels to collect player feedback and sentiment and. If you're a small team, chances are pretty good that you're going to have to do a lot of stabilization of your game before you reach 1.0. So from a technical side, we've we've gotten a lot of value out of early access just because mm. it's explored those combinations of items for us that we would never get to. And it's really fleshed out the crashes and the bad interactions and all those things. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, regarding the you know accepting the feedback of the consumer, I think that's another very important point for developers that... There is that line you have to be careful of, of, I'm going to ignore all feedback, you know, I'm just going to make the game I want to make and, you know, screw everybody else, or I'm going to accept all the feedback and make all the changes, and then I end up with, you know, just this, you know, hodgepodge of game mechanics. <laughs> yeah. Designed by committee. Yep. Never works. <laughs> Not all feedback is valid feedback. I think that's the first place to start is sometimes people will give you an opinion and you're just like, I mean, that's it's cool to have opinions, I guess. Um, if somebody says, you know, I hate roguelikes. Could you make this a Battle Royale game? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. There, there are people who will play your game that you will never please no yeah. matter what. And so you need to just learn how to ignore those people without ignoring other people. Um, and the the really tough thing i think about being any kind of artist or any kind of creative um and putting your stuff into the world to have it critiqued because that is what invariably is going to happen um is that not all people uh feel it's their responsibility to put that feedback in any kind of constructive form yeah um but just because they give their feedback in a rude fashion doesn't mean that they're wrong right and so you have to overcome your natural emotion of like, oh, this person just, you know, just dumped all over my game. Um, and you're like, I want to ignore them. I, w- I just want to say they're wrong and move on. Um, and I think for me personally, I often feel that way initially. Um, and, you know, when anyone ever gives me feedback that I think is, that hits a little too close to home, I, I get very defensive and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, screw that person. They don't even know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, but then I will think about it more and more and more, and I'll, I'll mull it over, and it's like, well, they were a jerk, but they have a point, yeah. <laughs> and and so you you start to you start to zone in on what that point is, and like I said, you you push it through your own filters and try and fix it in the way that you think will best uh, suit not just that person, but like the community as a whole. Um, it's very hard, and developers obviously have very different styles on on this kind of thing. Some people don't interact with fans at all because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, maybe they can't, <laughs> maybe they can't word their stuff constructively. They're too, they're too upset by what they're seeing, or uh, maybe they want to appear that, you know, 
they're the savant type and they're not taking any kind of feedback. I don't know. There's mm-hmm. like a million different ways to look at it. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, we, we look at feedback all the time. I read practically every review of our game and I try and I try and just clump those together, right? Like if I'm seeing the same sentiment over and over and over again, then it doesn't even matter the individual it's coming from. It probably has merit because enough people are giving you the same feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and being able to parse that feedback again that's another topic and a half we can certainly break down it's something that we've spoken about at length for a lot of my design videos and when we do kind of game dev uh, live casts with people as well and it is hard because you can have somebody as you said can say you know this game you know i died at this boss this is a horrible game you guys are lousy and what they really mean is you know I couldn't, the controls felt very cumbersome. I couldn't figure out how to dodge in time, and therefore I couldn't beat this boss. Yeah. Yeah. And some people you'll just never please. There was mm-hmm. one guy on our Steam discussion boards, and they were like, you know, I hate this part of the game, this part of the, <laughs> this part of the game. And they had played the game for 100 hours. And I'm like, well, I mean, there must be something you like about it that you've played it this much. But I ultimately ended up seeing a review from that person, and it was, it was negative. And it's like, well, I, I don't even know what to I don't know what to do there. <laughs> I'm just going to move on and, and deal with address other things where I can. Mm-hmm. This is something you certainly see a lot though. The the most the people with the most playtime are often the most passionate about the game, obviously, and they're very convicted about their opinions about it. So even though they may have a lot of playtime, they also might not like your game. They'll be very vocal about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a weird conundrum. So I think with that, I just have a few more general questions for you guys, and then we'll begin to wrap things up. Uh, sure. One thing that I wanted to ask about, and again, keeping with the like what we were talking about earlier, with Undermine being your first kind of roguelike kind of experience, like one of the things I've been reading and looking at for my book is using procedural generation and how it can often be uh, misunderstood by a lot of developers. So I just want to ask for either of you, uh, what was it like working with Proc Gen for Undermine? Hmm. <laughs> I think I think the misconception is um, this is something I wanted to talk about earlier. Is the the misconception in roguelikes is that RNG is um, RNG is RNG, right? Like it's it's you know just randomness. But the successful roguelikes or the successful games that employ a lo- a large portion of randomness in their game, mm-hmm. that randomness is very designed. Yeah. Um, like if you, if you're just going to say, oh, well, you know, a random amount of keys are going to drop on this floor. Like some people are going to have experiences that are wildly different. And a lot of those experiences are going to be bad. And so a lot of the time it's tailoring windows to allow for really emergent, spontaneous things like, oh, this random thing appeared and it like blew out my economy. And like, I was able to afford everything on the run. Um, or you want to have dry spells where, uh, you know, people have to be really crafty and creative with how they how they defeat the level because you know they didn't actually get a lot of bonuses. But the trick is is really creating those, making those feel organic and natural when, in a lot of cases, they are not. Um, and if and if you are just relying on pure randomness, your game is going to feel very like ninety percent of the time it's going to feel bad because real randomness feels bad most of the time. Mm-hmm. So you actually you actually want to tailor it a lot of the time um, while making it feel fresh and new every single time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a, as a good example of that, we certainly do... Our, our levels are 
procedural to a point, but Clint does a ton of work to build hand-built content within each room, but then that content is moved around. The content itself is internally randomized. So yeah, it's a, it's a very finely tuned slider between pure random and mm-hmm. purely handmade. And we try to tune that in every aspect of the game. Yeah. I think one of the biggest compliments, and we see this, it's not like a common compliment or a common comment, but when people are like, oh, this dungeon is Procton, but it feels handcrafted, which I've seen a couple of times, and I'm like, well, that's a really that makes you feel really good. Um, because if it's Procton and it always feels Procton, then that's usually not always a, co- a positive comment from people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And getting that balance right with Proc Gen is very difficult to do for a lot of these games. And uh, like you guys were saying, like there is that misconception that Proc Gen and roguelike design is just pure, you know, random chaos. And that is definitely not true. And I think I'm sure you guys can agree with this. I'm sure the audience who's listening as well that the very best roguelikes are usually built on a very set or very locked. A set of rules that determine how this world is generated because as you guys were saying over the course of this cast like balance is a very big point about this game that you don't want the game to be spawning the hardest enemies on the very first floor yes that's random and chaotic but it doesn't lead to that experience it doesn't lead to the player entering that flow state that you want them to be right Mm -hmm. yeah and i think uh when you look at some of the biggest successes in the genre, like if you look at the Binding of Isaac, you start to learn the rules of their generator. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes you a better player. Like you learn the strategy, You're like, oh, a secret room uh, is going to be ad- to adjacent to as many rooms as possible. And then, a, you know, a super secret room is going to be uh, adjacent to the least amount of rooms possible. And you start to understand how the generator works and what its rules are. And then you yourself are able to manipulate those things. Um, And we try to incorporate that as well with our own types of rules. And I think what you end up seeing is is people really appreciate the depth of the game because of that, because they think once they've learned everything there is to know about the game, they start to learn the hidden, the hidden rules. Um, And that opens up a whole new aspect of the game for them. And part of that is is designing the the generator or the rules that govern the game in a particular way. Yep. And when you're trying to like build like again like the set of balance, you really can't achieve I think perfect balance with with any particular role. You can get close or you can get reasonably near it, but as we've said earlier, with the use of the items and your various events that can occur in a game, you never truly know how powerful a player is going to be at any given time. You can have somebody approach a boss with the very best items in the game. You can have somebody who, you know, all the items they got were like, maybe you can move faster, and maybe you can jump, you can do a double jump. Now go fight this boss with, like, no weapon upgrades. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't think you want to fix those things, because people want to feel like they're um, gaming the the system. They Mm -hmm. want to feel like they're... um, like a lot of players will be like, "Hey, look at this sneaky thing I did! Haha, I have one over on the devs." And we're like, "Yeah, I mean, we knew that was possible." <laughs> uh, but it's it's I'm super happy that they feel that way because like they're they're getting something out of that experience. You just like I said before, you just want to make sure that doesn't completely undermine everything you've tried to do in your game. Yep. As long as it's kind of an isolated scenario, mm-hmm. then it's okay. Yep. So I think we are just about 
at the end. There's one last topic that I wanted to just bring up very quickly, and that is the art of Undermine. And the game has a really great aesthetic to it. And I just want to give you guys a second, like, for the people watching, like, what was kind of the inspiration for the art and the aesthetics of Undermine? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I mean, pixel art is a, is a whole branch unto itself yeah. these days. I, I think that we... Sometimes we regret it, but we went quite high def on the pixel art. Our pixels are two by two. A lot of other games that you see have four by four pixels or above. Uh, it obviously takes its toll on our production times. So it takes a lot more time to create frames for animations or set pieces or anything. But just like I think what inspired a lot of Undermine, it's kind of the stuff we grew up with. You know, it's the early games. It's the it's the more old school mechanics in certain places. But yeah, thank you for the compliment. We we certainly have tried very hard to make this look like a, a beautiful game. And I think <laughs> we do hear that from people that we've succeeded in some regard. I think our Undermine's whole aesthetic across the board is trying to um, harken back to some of the RPGs that just made you feel comfortable, like cozy playing them, just mm -hmm. easy on the eyes, easy on the ears, and just something you can really uh, get lost in. I think mm -hmm. that's a big part of Undermine's aesthetic across the board. Uh, trying to be something that you just want to like, oh, I've had a long day of work and I just want to like sink into this game for an hour. Yeah, exactly. It's comfort food. It's like a big bowl of mac and cheese, you know? <laughs> That's what we want our mind to be. With that said, I guess in terms of wrapping up the cast, as we said, uh, for those of you listening to it, Undermine should either be out at 1.0 or really close to it. So, one thing I always like to ask developers when it comes to games on early access is, how did you know or like what was kind of the uh, goal you wanted to hit to take the game out of early access? <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard thing to answer. I think we just kind of had an impression of the kind of content that we wanted to deliver as like a core package. Mm -hmm. Um the intent is to keep blowing the game out. More features, more content, more enemies, items, and all that. But I think it was just kind of where we where we saw the value. Like, we would be content calling this 1.0 because it had enough in it that we felt like if this were just a box, people would be satisfied. Um, so that's kind of where we ended up cutting it off. And mm -hmm. it, with this last update, it means we're putting in, like, the final boss fight and stuff like that to cap the game. Um but we have a lot more ambition than that, so it's there's still going to be a lot of development afterwards. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true. I think we always sort of put a line in the sand and said we were going to get this out in 2020, and mm -hmm. it's got to be before Cyberpunk. So <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a cutoff for ourselves. Well, we were originally going to be way after Cyberpunk, but <laughs> yeah, steer clear of Cyberpunk. That's really yeah. Part of it, part of it, yeah, part of it factors into our plans of like trying to develop our new studio and and what we want to do is like an, another project it's like we're not gonna move on to that too soon um but we're trying to i think the thing is is both of us are very experienced and we've shipped a lot of games between each uh each other um i think inexperienced devs get stuck developing for really long periods of time without putting anything out there's a it's it's very nerve-wracking when you're about to release something. Mm -hmm. I know just before we went out to EA, like you get these feelings of like, I can't tell if this game is good at all anymore. I can't tell what it is. Like it just is a thing to me. I don't, I don't get it. And then you get very scared about letting anyone else see it. Um, 
but you have to overcome that and ship something and learn from it. And then you take that learning and you apply it to a new thing and then you ship that thing and you create mm-hmm. this cycle. Um, I think we're both pretty experienced to be in that place. All right, great. And uh, for the people listening right now, do you have any teasers you can share about what's coming to undermine post 1.0? <laughs> <laughs> no, we well, don't have we don't have anything. I don't think like there there'll, there'll be some major features, but certainly the number one question we get asked the most is when is this coming to Switch? And <laughs> all we are saying is that will be post 1.0. <laughs> so that's a big one. Oh. Yeah, as far as as far as features, we don't we don't want to commit too much because we're exhausted. <laughs> We've done eighty hour weeks for a, like practically an entire year to get to where we are, and so I think the thing we're looking forward to most is like having it be one for a little while and not having a time pressure for a bit. Mm-hmm. But there'll be exciting things. All right. So I think with that, my final question for you guys then is: Do you have anything you would like to say to the fans listening to end the cast on? Uh, I would just like to thank everyone who has supported us up until this point. Our early access period has been very successful, and we have a lot of people who are really passionate about the game, and it gives us all the energy in the world to keep making stuff. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And just as a quick reminder, we are going to be on Game Pass on August 6th, so fire up those Xboxes. Nice. All right. So I think with that, we will end things here for the cast. So uh, Derek and Clint, thank you so much for coming on. Like we, like I said earlier, definitely best of luck and congratulations on Undermine coming out. And for the people listening, uh, be sure to check it out either right around this time or closely after the release of this cast. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. All right. So for everyone listening, we're going to end the cast here. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I am there at GWBicer. You can find links to our Discord channel and Patreon in the notes of this podcast. Discord is open to everybody, and Patreon can help support the channel and my site, and can get you stuff like ad-free content and bonuses such as that. For you guys, any social media you would like to plug before I let you go? Uh, Our Twitter is undermine underscore game. Uh, and our Discord is just undermine. So hit us up there. All right. So with that, we're going to end things here for this week's Perceptive Podcast. Come back daily for discussions on game design here and on game wisdom, where he's in the art and science of games. Until next time, take care.